This is the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. This is where it all counts. This is why we're here. This is why each one of us are here. And now, here's your host. Welcome back to another edition of the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. I am Paul Pertichese, and thank you for joining me as always across the way, Mr. Jeff Abercrombie. Jeff, welcome back. It's been a couple months since you've been on air. How are you doing this evening? Well, we've had quite the off season. Um, you know, it's it's been an interesting one here and um, on the West Coast too. We've we've had, I'm sure you've seen nothing but rain and <laughs> taking care of everything around the house. And um, glad to be back. Glad to be talking some prospects. Um, today's a really exciting episode. So um, yeah, I'm ready to dig in. Absolutely. And we are closing in on the draft a little over a week away. And we are so excited here at Saturday to Sunday to have Mr. Matt Wallman back. Matt, welcome back another year to the Saturday to Sunday football <laughs> podcast. Hey, thanks for having me once again. This is always it's an annual tradition. It's a lot of fun. And and I always get have a have a you know, it's always a joy to get to chop it up with you guys. So, uh, you know, I've been looking forward to it. Absolutely. So let's dive right in. I do think I do think this is a very interesting class i know we could say that just about every year but i do feel like the the narratives here there's less i think group think amongst this draft class than probably any i can remember since i've been doing saturday to sunday so let's start right at the quarterback position because jeff and i since last summer have been on the anthony richardson bandwagon it's had a lot of ups and downs for people some jump on some jump off but he's a, he's definitely a polarizing prospect, right? You could you could talk to him about you could talk to him, uh, talk about him with all different analysts, and everybody kind of has a different stance, a different opinion, what he can be, what he needs to work on. So you know, I I, I dug into the RSP the last you know forty eight hours. I know your takes, but for people maybe here at Saturday Sunday who listen to the show, a little bit about what you most like about Anthony Richardson, what you're most intrigued with areas that you think he could develop and get better at that makes you even more excited about him? Sure. Well, you know, I think probably the best way to start it with this is to talk about how I evaluate quarterbacks, because I think that that's an important um, piece of context when it comes to why people differ about Anthony Richardson. So, you know, with the rookie scouting portfolio, I use a breadth of talent scale and a depth of talent scale. My breadth of talent scale is is literally 98 different defined areas of criteria that I look at to determine what a quarterback can do, not how well they do it, just what they can do, what experience they have demonstrating it and to the defined level. And that defined level is kind of like basic skills to be an NFL quarterback. Um, And then I look at depth of talent and how I do that is uh, I have defined criteria points within um, nine different um, areas of how well they perform in different tiers, ranging from, um, you know, deficient for the NFL game to star level for the NFL game. And I have defined things within each of those tiers for each of the nine areas that I look at. And there's a, a number of those areas I look at are accuracy-based information. So I chart games. I don't look at completion percentage. I've learned over the years that, you know, Baker Mayfield can have an awesome completion percentage, but really by NFL, um, really NFL criteria, he can't hit the broad side of a barn on certain routes going across the middle of the field. Um, Or, 
you know, someone like Lamar Jackson, who everyone and their mother was saying wasn't accurate enough, should be playing wide receiver. You know, you look at those, um, you chart those games and you say, wow, his receivers dropped a lot of passes and he threw a lot of accurate passes. So what I do is I, I chart players. I chart usually between somewhere about four to six games for every quarterback. And I chart them on, on six areas of that are all kind of interconnected. Like they're, they're all worked together, but they're things like um, on script and off script versus pressure against um, no pressure throws that are made um, against zone and man defense. And those are all like in various combinations of those six. And then I'm looking at the ranges of the field, you know, and I divide the field up into, you know, um, the flat, the sideline and the middle of the field. And then I divide it into um, short, intermediate, vertical and deep, which is 14 yard increments of accuracy. And then I'm dividing accuracy up into I want to see if they displayed the right touch velocity on the ball for the throw. And then whether the the target is what I call area code accurate, meaning that you should expect the receiver to make the catch, but it's not exactly where a coach would dictate the ball needs to land based on the route and based on the coverage. And so I'm looking at all of those things and then checking it against NFL next gen stats baseline percentage to, you know, for, for ranges of the field and types of throws versus pressure and against pressure to say, how accurate is that quarterback? So when I did all that, and I look at Anthony Richardson, his accurate percentage was much better from charting his plays than it was based on a statistical percentage. There are a lot of drops. And and it wasn't just my small sample, because then you look at other sites that do this type of work, and I can't remember quoting the site exactly, and I wish I could, but there's a site out there that has a database of, um, you know, charting that they've done and showing dropped passes and pocket skills. And Anthony Richardson had more drop passes than anybody except for one player in their database. And that player, he had to go all the way back to Dan Marino at Pittsburgh. So if he's in the same company as Dan Marino on the number of drop passes that he had, I think that kind of validates what I charted with those things. But the thing about Anthony Richardson is that when you watch him play, sure, the footwork isn't perfect when it comes to his release mechanics. So, yes, sometimes he's going to try and make a hero throw like Matt Stafford or Patrick Mahomes with somebody in his chest and try and muscle a ball 50 yards downfield and it's going to look bad. And even there are times where he doesn't recognize something like cover two and your average high school coach who's been doing this for a year or two might go, see, he can't even read cover two. That's awful. He's not very good. Okay. But the difference between being a high school coach and being a scout is understanding where players actually project um, in terms of development and what's easy to learn and what's difficult to learn. What's easy to learn is to learn you know, is to basically get better at identifying different coverage types um, in in various situations and executing correctly to them. What's easy is is being able to understand when to get let off the governor and not taking some high risk throws that you shouldn't because you've leaned on your athletic ability all this time. What's hard to do is moving efficiently in the pocket while you're manipulating underneath coverage sometimes two or more defenders to while you're doing that against pressure and then 
being able to layer the ball over the field like Justin Herbert or Matt Patrick Mahomes or a lot of veteran quarterbacks and fit it into a tight window with anticipation or with placement only where the receiver can make it. And what I just mentioned there are things that usually when you go on uh, you know, ESPN or Fox or any big draft, you know, media network covering draft at the time, they're going to point out to you how Mitchell Trubisky moved well in the pocket on this one play or how he made this nice layered throw in this one instance or how he was able to manipulate the safety in this instance, whether it was Trubisky or Drew Locke or early Daniel Jones or early, you know, Josh Allen or maybe guys like Zach Wilson or, you know, um, Baker Mayfield. But what they don't often show you and can't often find is these top 10 prospects doing all three or four things at once at the same time on multiple plays of being able to manipulate, avoid, and throw an, a, a high-level pro-caliber accurate ball with placement and um, you know, in a very difficult situations. And you could just look at Anthony Richardson's tape against Tennessee last this past year and get multiple throws like that from his tape. Um, so what makes Anthony Richardson special is that the things that he knows how to do are hard to teach. The things that he doesn't know yet is just about game experience and reps to see different combinations of coverages more often and knowing when that he can't lean too hard on his arm. Cause mind you, he's only been starting for one year. So, you know, for me, when I see all that, I'll just say that, you know, when you add all that up, I haven't even touched on upon how much great of an athlete Anthony Richardson is and what he can do when he decides to tuck the ball. Um, I'm just telling you how good of a pro quarterback he is is if he was a statue. If he was a statue and couldn't move, I would still say he has the he has the upside to be every bit as good as Philip Rivers was. Um if we just like chopped his you know, basically made him cotton hill out of King of the Hill and chopped his shins off and told him he was gonna have to waddle around the pocket. He probably would have been he, he still would have been a Philip Rivers type of prospect to me, maybe an aspiring Philip Rivers but someone who has real promise in the passing game. And people are calling him raw because they don't understand the difference between what raw really is. He's an unbelievable processor of information at this stage of his career, and it's only going to grow. Yeah, I want to dig into that because I wrote some notes here as a follow-up. And and really, you've talked in the past a lot about uh, bakers versus chefs, right? And we get the, the Kirk Cousins, the Baker Mayfields, and the you know, the Pat Mahomes and Russell Wilson's. And, you know, I when you say there's projected growth, um, especially in, you know, what you've said are actually some of the easier concepts of the game to grasp, such as identifying coverages, maybe pre-post-snap, maybe different manipulations that essentially the defenses do to kind of expose which quarterbacks are high level and which quarterbacks kind of top out as sort of your average NFL starters. So, you know, obviously projecting is one of the most difficult things that we can do as evaluators. But when you look at Anthony Richardson, what makes you feel really confident that he's in that chef category versus maybe capped out as a baker? Well, I would I would argue that a baker and a chef can be almost on equal levels. 
Um, it's just the approach that you take to the game. You know, uh, uh, Tom Brady was one of the greatest bakers you ever saw. Um, and Kirk Cousins is a hell of a baker, you know, at this point, at, the, at this range of his game. Um, Brett Favre was a great chef, but at the same time, you had meltdowns where, you know, sometimes, you know, you had a bad night, you know, with some of the things that would happen there. So, I mean, it's a it's a range of things. But what I would say is what makes Anthony Richardson a good quarterback or projected to be a good NFL quarterback is, number one, is that the, I think the most important one of the most important things to look for with quarterback play is how quickly they process information. And part of processing information for coverage, not the S2 test, which everyone's talking about now, um, which again, I, you know, I'm looking forward to learning more from those guys. And I've been in, you know, I've, uh, and, and I've heard of those guys for years now, but it's like, we haven't had enough data yet to see how that differs, you know, how the wonder lick, has certain biases. Does the S2 have certain biases? Are there certain limitations with the S2? We don't know. All we're hearing is that it's kind of replaced the wonder lick a bit, which is probably a good thing. But, um, you know, but they, at least they're in the right target range now. It's not about um, mental recall of a whiteboard. That's a baseline thing. It's about how well you translate information that you see on the field and into action. So it's so processing a lot at the quarterback position is about seeing the coverage in position against a receiver before the break and being able to identify that's going to break open. Being able to see the field clear enough to know that it's going to break open, not only with one defender, but maybe with multiple defenders in the area. Being able to see slight changes, maybe pre-snap or early post-snap to know that where to look on the field to identify who you're first going to go to <clears throat> and then if those things don't work out when you're about to make the play and execute can do you have the awareness to take what you have in your recall about the play pre-snap and move on to the next available opportunity that's the best available opportunity and when you look at anthony richardson versus a baker mayfield or or a drew lock or a mitchell trubisky his processing's fast now Sometimes it wasn't accurate because he didn't see the right thing, but the the logic of what he was seeing was. So for instance, if you you know, if you've never seen it's it's almost like if you were reading traffic laws in the US versus going somewhere overseas, and based on your understanding of US traffic laws, you process something and immediately react to it. And it's logical, but it's wrong because you were in the wrong, you're, you're, you're operating in a different country than that. Anthony Richardson, when he's wrong, it's more like that. It's not that because he's had years of learning how to drive and he still doesn't know how to use the correct, um, you know, use the correct lever on the steering column to, to sig turn signal, you know, or, or a better way of saying it is I once, I once lived in Jamaica. My first day in Jamaica, I had to drive on the opposite side of the road um than what the u.s was and i was using a, a a pickup truck with a manual stick shift on the gear shift column on the opposite side of my driver's seat and i've never driven that before so you know when you make screw-ups like that it's not because i don't know how to drive it's that i didn't know how to drive that and so when you look at anthony richardson you realize that that's more his deal when you know when you can manipulate when you can 
when you can um when when you can um really anticipate what defenders are doing and the ball comes out quickly relative to a Baker Mayfield who oftentimes was in a really wide open offense and executing quickly and accurately but when you examine him um to the pro standard of how tight coverage is going to be where you need to read the leverage where the ball needs to come out you would often see one two three little steps from Baker Mayfield patting his feet or bouncing before he would throw the ball and it wouldn't work against tight man coverage. It would work in other scenarios, but it didn't work there. And then when you translated it to the NFL game, you watch, you go, he's two to three beats late. And he's still two to three beats late. And he's still throwing it behind Odell Beckham, or at least he was, you know. And so when you see those scenarios, it's really about understanding that. Like, you're not paying attention to where the defender is when you're watching the tape in the college you're 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 looking to when the ball should come out, when he should recognize it, and where the ball should be placed. Because what you're imagining is the worst case scenario in the NFL, which is that you've got Jalen Ramsey on your hip pocket, and he's going to be able to put his arm out. Are you putting that ball pinpoint to where it needs to be? And if you are, then and it gets knocked away, who cares? You know it was an accurate pass when you watch it in the NFL. So when you project to that level with things, that's when you look at Anthony Richardson, you go, it stands out. And, you know, and if you're not looking at that, then maybe you're looking at completion percentage. Maybe you're looking at tape without projecting. And maybe it's just, you know, so for me, I look at him and and it was kind of like a no brainer that this guy was one of the top quarterbacks in this class. I absolutely love that. I mean, uh, you spoke to the patented Baker Hezzy pump, you know, (laughs) it's this, He's known for that now. And and you do have a way with analogies. I mean, anyone who's traveled has done the blinker windshield wiper thing on the, you know, in Australia, that was mine. And and the, the rules of the road, man, China was jarring for me for that exact reason. It's just the rules that they're just different, uh, different translations, you know, for the same yeah. thing. So, you know, maybe taking how you analyze quarterbacks, taking all of this context and maybe a little bit, you know, briefer than we've deep uh, we've dived into Anthony Richardson, but by all means, take as much time as you need because one player on your list that I, I just I can't not talk about. I mentioned it to Paul. Oh, I think last summer, if not last summer, one of the first first weeks of the the college football season. But but I'm in. I, I grew up in Fresno. My boy Jake Hayner. Um, you know, I saw his game versus Nevada, right? That That's the one that I think people will probably recognize. He kind of had the cracked rib or something. He had the moxie. He, the poise that he had in his, you know, in his fourth quarter drive there is, is something that, you know, I don't have the words uh, to be able to um, speak to why that was impressive. It was just as, it was just evident in front of my eyes as you were watching it. And I think a lot of people recognize that too, but like you said, you chart these games, you understand, you know, where the quarterback should go. You understand how to grade the quarterback's decision-making. You know, Jake Hayner's known for not having a massive set of tools. He's being comped to Brock Purdy because of the quote-unquote intangibles. Is that, you know, is is this decision-making process? Is this, um, why is Jake Hayner, you know, relatively you know why is he above some of these other big names that you might see mocked in the first round of nfl drafts 
Well, for me, again, because I, I talk about the value of processing information, that's why Lamar Jackson, Patrick Mahomes were guys that were high on my list and guys like Zach Wilson and Baker Mayfield and Drew Locke were low on my list, despite the NFL being higher on them or NFL media being higher on them too. And I think the re and or Malik Willis being low on my list or Desmond Ritter. Or, and I had Brock Purdy sixth last year on my list. I mean, he was fairly high up on my board um, and a guy who was kind of a, in terms of score. So for me, it's, it just goes to show you that I'm going to value processing and technique over toolsy physical traits um, and slow processors. So, Guys like Stetson Bennett and Jake Hayner and Tyson Bajan, um, you know, to some extent, are all higher on my board than guys like Herndon Hooker and and Levis and Clayton Toon and, and and guys like that because Hayner has a quick processor. He has a good play action game. He has a good drop game. He can play in a lot of different offenses if you needed it. Sure, he doesn't have the elite NFL starter arm, but I think it's good enough for him to be able to develop into a journeyman starter at the very least, and maybe even build on from there. I think he had a better arm than Brock Purdy did coming out. Um, and when you watch his game, it's about the decision-making. Can you be aggressive when you need to be aggressive? Can you create off structure when you need to create off structure? Can you stay on structure and find your second or third read in a pocket that's compromised? And can you do it in situations where, you know, the chips are down and you're, and, and, you know, there's pressure on you. And he showed all that. He showed that in the UCLA game too. I'm, I'm going to show that game on my channel on, in the RSP channels. I'm going to re review that game. So Hainer to me, it's just more of a natural thing. It's like, if you truly value processing, then you're going to define what good processing is. It's going to be scored in your evaluation criteria, and it's going to show up when you see it on film. And you're going to as going to score high, and so he scored high, you know. And that's that's kind of the way I look at it. Is that I'm hope, and if I'm right, you know, and I've been wrong plenty of times over my career, and I'll continue to adjust what I need to do. But the, all the errors I've had with guys like Dak Prescott, and on the bad side, underrating him. And overrating a guy like Blaine Gabbert way back in the day or missing or like liking Jalen Hurts, but not seeing it quite clear enough to be as high on him as I could have been, you know, but at the same time, having successes with other guys, we've talked about Jackson and Mahomes, all that. But you what you see is you end up with a grading system that says I value processing. And and at this stage of the game, it totally makes sense that if you're a slow processor without great technique. Will Levis, Herndon Hooker, you're going to be towards the bottom end of my evaluation. If you have good skills, you know, good technical skills, good athletic ability and high processes and talent, then you're going to be C.J. Stroud and Bryce Young and Anthony Richardson. And if you're you you lean better on the processing end, but your 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 physical tools are decent, but not quite top level, then you're going to be Jay Kaner and, and Stetson Bennett, who are going to be rated higher than most. Because the if you ask me, the NFL draft media, they may have just started hearing about S2, but they, they're not evaluating with processing because they've never they're they're doing the same old stuff they've been doing for the past twenty five years. So here we are with Herndon Hooker creeping up into the first round. Yeah, I mean I think it's a fascinating conversation and I think just in talking about some of the guys you liked, I think you mentioned why a guy like Will Levis is a little bit further down your board, right? The processing, some of that. I want to go back to Hendon Hooker for one second, though. Like, 
out there in, in the media, the conversation about it's hard to evaluate him fully because of the scheme and the offense they ran in Tennessee. With your process, do you come across guys? We can talk about Hooker, but it's even more of a general question. If a quarterback comes from a particular scheme where they're not asked to do a lot or very simple reads, how do you have it built into your system to take in, in your in your processing to evaluate that? Is it something where what what if you don't see it, they just don't get you know, like they don't get credit for being able to do it or show it? So maybe just like, you know, I know a lot of times you go on shows and you don't get a chance to talk about the process as much. So a guy like Hendon Hooker, anybody who comes from a scheme in college that maybe is just not asked to do much. Is it a harder eval for you or just you don't see it so they don't get credit for it? How do you kind of process that on guys that come from particular offenses? Sure, it's a great question. And I'd say the simple answer is with certain things, if you don't see what someone's, if you don't see something in your criteria that's, um, you know, that that's a part of your evaluation and they don't show it, then you can't give them credit for it because they haven't proven they can do it. doesn't mean they can't. And you may note in your qualitative notes that I didn't see – Hernan Hooker do X, Y, and Z. So it doesn't mean he can't, but I didn't see it at either Tennessee or Virginia Tech. Um, you know, and obviously those were different offenses. But when it comes to quarterback play, you know, I'm sure that there are, you know, we think about evaluating quarterbacks and 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 you're gonna see this in major media a lot too, talking about how they did they identify this coverage? Did they have go to this pre-snap look? Did they understand how to make adjustments to the line? And they start getting into all the technical jargon of like, you know, blitz packages and, um, you know, um, you know, blitz pickups and different types of hybrid coverages and whether they can tell you about all that stuff. I don't care about that, honestly. Like, I mean, I care about it enough that I'm learning about it, but at the end of the day, I'm not writing down, does he see cover two versus does he see cover three hybrid? What I'm looking at is because, you know, we look at a Brett Favre or a Dan Marino or a Steve McNair, or low wonder lick guys, all low wonder lick guys, all guys that if you ask them, you know, what basically what that said is that they didn't get to do the, um, they, they didn't have um, what's her face as, as a mother, you know, all those Stanford, all those Stanford cheaters, you know, who, who do the SAT, who did, who did the SAT scan, the Ar- Operation Varsity Blues. They didn't have Felicity Huffman as their mother or father and, you know, getting them ready for quarterback, um, quarterbacking in terms of the academic part. I'm glad you can be a great coach, you know, um, but first you got to be a good player. When, you know, it's talking about, oh, he's going to be a great coach. He's like a coach on the field. That's great. So I don't want a coach on the field. Some of them are overweight, out of shape, have high blood pressure, and probably would fall dead of a heart attack after they took a five-step drop. So, uh, you know, I want a quarterback. And guys like Marino and McNair, uh, you know, they didn't – and Favre, some, some of them to an extreme, didn't understand what the coverages looked like. But they understood – you understood that they had techniques down, that when it came to concepts of understanding – when to let the ball go based on what they saw, was it logical? Even if it's even if they can't repeat back to you everything that they saw in a technically um, in a conceptually sound manner, I don't care about that because at the end of the day, Baker Mayfield or Alex Smith, Alex Smith could tell you everything you want 
about coverage. And he's always going to get the right answer according to quarterback coaches I talk to because the right answer in conceptual football is always the check down. And he was the best check down artist that we ever saw in football. You know, and part of that is, is at the end of the day, you still have to, you know, it's, it still comes down to um, being able to, when you look at the field, can that guy, um, you know, create and are they someone that, um, you know, I, I'm trying to get back to the original part of that question and tie it all together. And really, I guess the, you know, the thought being that, um, what we look at, you know, for me, they're if they're recognizing when to throw the ball, they're being able to deal with different types of stimuli that go wrong. They stumble at this during their drop. They drop the snap. Pressure comes early. The receiver falls down. Those are all instances of where you have to adjust conceptually and process fast to be able to, to, to find a solution. So it may not be that the, that the cover three was actually a cover two or that the quarters was actually a cover three or that it was some variation of that. It's actually, sometimes you just look and see, can they move and react fast to certain things and recover? And that bodes well and projects well as they start to acquire more information that the NFL is going to throw at them. Because most of these quarterbacks don't see disguises. They aren't going to see the level of disguises that they're going to see in the NFL. So for me, it's not like, we can get all technical jargon we want to about the X's and O's, but that's why a lot of X's and O's guys just aren't scouts. They're mathematicians, but they're not, you know, they're not literary professors. You, you know, it's a different kind of venue, you know, with that. And, and I have all the respect in the world for that area, but it doesn't always, it doesn't translate fully to scouting. And that's one of the reasons why is that, you know, they're looking strictly at one thing like, oh, he missed the cover too. So therefore he's bad as opposed to, oh, he can do lots of things harder than reading the cover too. He's going to eventually learn to read the cover too. Yeah, fascinating conversation. That in its own right, just the process and 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 analyzing these guys could be a whole podcast just in itself. Uh, let's transition over to some running backs and talk about them. Anybody in the in the Devi world would have said for years, we would have been talking about this one guy. Most people would have thought he was, would have been locked in to most people's top fives. Uh, Jeff and I were big fans of him in the summer. We're still fans of him probably compared to the general consensus out there. Uh, but one thing that piqued my interest when I was going for the RSB is you're right there in terms of still valuing the skill set of Zach Evans out of Ole Miss very highly. What is it about his game? Obviously, he's had a pretty interesting journey in college, right? The transfer and then this year, the freshman kind of coming out of nowhere and taking a lot of uh, carries and, and you know workload there uh, this past year. What is it about Evans's game that intrigues you and has you believe in that he can transition to the next level to be an impactful runner? Sure, and you guys have good taste and good skills at looking at guys because <laughs> we talked about Anthony Richardson. You've been looking at him. You, you've been high on him for a long time. And the fact that you appreciate Zach Evans' game says the same thing because it's about what you see on tape, not what the narratives are telling you. And, and part of the narratives is the box score. People look at the box score and they create narratives based on that. Again, narratives created by Baker Mayfield and his completion percentage that's a narrative. He's very accurate. No, the film says he wasn't so accurate. So it's the same thing when you look at Zach Evans. When you watch him run, 
He's a sophisticated decision maker. He understands his blocking schemes, whether it's zone or gap. He knows when there's he can identify penetration quickly. He understands how to make the efficient decisions to get the hard yards. And that's the thing most people mistake is because, again, they're, they're narrative creators watching box scores or watching highlights and go, I don't see enough 50, 60-yard runs on this guy's tape. You know, when he gets into the NFL game, those 50, 60-yard runs are going to be five to six-yard games and some sort of weird math that they've done in their head to kind of, you know, create how that's going to filter down and say, so there needs to be X amount of big play rushes in their game for that to happen. No, you just need to watch, like, how his feet, how his eyes and his feet respond to certain running schemes that we know that those designs are how the defense is trying to stop it, and does he adjust? And you see an ultra-efficient, creative runner who understands how to turn those potential losses into short gains. And when you do that, you're making Frank Gore decisions, not Anthony McFarland decisions. And and some of you may not even remember who Anthony McFarland is listening right now because he never popped in the NFL, at least not to this stage yet, because he couldn't make those decisions. He lost yardage. You know, lost a lot. He'd lose a lot of yards that a guy like Frank Gore, who annoyed the heck out of you guys at the end of end of his fantasy career, you, you know, was still getting, you know, five, 10, 15 yard gains on plays. And Anthony McFarland would lose three, you know. So a guy like Zach Evans can do that. And he can also author breakaway runs. He's got the acceleration and speed. He has the curvilinear movement. He has the hard cutting skills. He's someone who can catch the ball. He's maybe not the greatest pass catcher, um, but I've seen him catch a ball just fine with his hands. He's going to get, he's a check down leak out option. He's not going to be Austin Eckler for you. There aren't many Austin Ecklers. Get over it. He'll be okay. You'll get, see him on screen passes. You'll see him on, you know, dump downs and it can work out just fine. And he's also an excellent tackle breaker for his size. And, Let's get to that size part because at the combine, he was 202. He was 208 in his pro day. But let's remember, he's, what, 22, 21, 22 years old. Man, if you were – if if you're 30 and over, let's say you're 35 and over, you know, 35 and over, you remember the days when you could play half-court basketball, eat a plate of brownies um, in August heat down here in, say, Georgia, and you'd lose 10 pounds in a day, you know, not – you know, and then now you do that, you know, if you're over 35, you probably either have a case of heartburn or an upset stomach and you gain five pounds and you're sore. So, you know, it's a different body situation, you know, for, for Evans, he can drop five pounds at the, you know, like, or gain five pounds, like it's nothing. He'll probably play in the 210, 215 range, breaks a lot of tackles, bounces off a lot of hits, knows how to run with a compact style. And more importantly, that is the alignment with his pads and his and his hips is always good. So when he gets skinny through a hole, he runs through reaches and wraps from all three levels of the defense, and he'll occasionally bounce off hits. So when you put all that together, I don't care about Quinshawn Junkins, but them using him as Mr. Inside and using Evans as Mr. Outside. I looked at him at TCU. He looked great at TCU. And yeah, he had turf toe, and then Kendra Miller got more play, but Kendra Miller didn't take that dude's job. Kendra Miller's an excellent back, deserves to be talked about, Deserves to, you know, probably going to be a good NFL runner. Reminds me of Lamar Miller. But Zach Evans reminds me of a combination of Clinton Portis and Dalvin Cook in terms of how he plays the foot in the game. And people are still already talking about it, still talking about his 
whole quixotic recruiting journey, you know, where he signed with Georgia, then he decommitted, and then you didn't know where he was going to go because he was associated with I don't know how many different teams, supposedly had run-ins with his high school coaches and wound up at TCU and then left TCU because, no, he left TCU because there were 30 play. Gary um, Patterson was saying that there were 30 players that he thought were uh, possibly going to leave because TCU didn't have their NIL deals together yet at this time last year. And it's not like he moved to, you know, South Dakota School of the Gem Mines, you know. And, and, you know, he moved to Ole Miss. You know, he got a better NIL deal probably out of that. And he made a move that was a lateral move on the surface, at least, even though TCU went to the national championship. Nobody thought that was going to happen. And so, you know, when you look at all that, the, he was a good kid. He had a 375 GPA as a freshman. He was a good kid in high school. The the coaches vouched for him. He didn't want to give up his cell phone in the, in the championship game because he was handling his own recruiting. And his parents weren't really equipped to do that. The person who was was grandfather. He died the year before. So when you look at all that, you go, can you give the kid a break? He's a good football player. Seems to be a decent kid who was semi-immature. I know all my kids probably would have screwed that up. And they're all good kids. And they all have responsible jobs. And they take care of the people they need to take care of and do their thing. Most of you out there who have kids my age or, or, or past adulthood, probably would, uh, if you looked at your kids objectively, would say, yeah, odds are if they were thrust in that situation, they'd probably be talked about like Zach Evans too. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we hope the NFL is able to see it through the the same eyes that you do uh, because sadly that that does matter. But um, I think we're going to be putting, putting, you know, you said we have good taste. I think we might be putting that to the test here. I don't know. I mean, Frank Gore is my favorite running back. I think we've talked about that. That's nothing. That's no surprise. I mean, shoot, he should be everybody's favorite running back. Um, but I, you know, I have to, I have two questions here, and they kind of go together. So, you know, this is a you, you talked about weight. Um, this class in general is a light class. There, it makes it really hard for you. You can tell there's a lot of talented movers, you know, really talented players that that know how to you know, use what they have to win on the football field, but it makes a very difficult projection on the NFL field. Um, there's definitely a lot of, you know, size weight um, bias and people out there. I mean, even at the NFL level, you know, you mentioned, you know, you project Zach Evans can put on some weight. I, I don't know how far you feel comfortable doing that. You know, Jameer Gibbs, can he put on enough weight to get into the 205, 210 range and kind of fit the profile that, you know, all the analytics fantasy players want to try to like look for in their running backs. But I want to boil all of this down to Deuce Vaughn because I I heard you talk about him a month or two ago and it was rain on Deuce Vaughn day and everyone was just raining on Deuce Vaughn. And, and then you just had, you had some really interesting things to say about him and I think he's probably taken the mantle of my favorite mover in the class. And obviously the size is going to be this big sort of anchor, this this big hurdle that, you know, is probably going to be that chip on the shoulder that he has to overcome in every step. And I don't even know if the NFL is going to give him an opportunity 
or the right role to be able to take advantage of the skills that he has. Um, but when I see him run in a phone booth and run inside around 300 pound men at, without getting touched, and, and these are people crowding his space, I see a guy that is going to be good at the NFL level. I just don't know, is there a path for him to be, you know, what is his ceiling? So, you know, I noticed he's a little bit lower down on the list. I don't know if that's weight wise, movement wise. Is it, I know you have a power component to your grading, but I have to hear your take on Deuce Vaughn a little bit. Sure. I mean, you know, pound for pound, if we weren't dealing with the fact that He's going to have to, that there are certain elements of running back play that are important to be a starter in the league. Pound for pound skill-wise, there are a lot of skills that would make him one of the top five running backs in this class. He's an excellent receiver. Love, like you said, terrific mover, excellent decision-making, um, agile, great footwork. Um, you know, he has solid, con he has good contact balance for his size. He has good strength for his size. Um, so all those things are great. That elevates him enough that he's a top 15 player on my board at the position, which is awesome. But yeah, sadly to say, you know, part of the elements of what I look for with, with running backs is that, you know, can you break tackles? Who can you break those tackles against? What kind of tackles can you break? And what kind of hits can you bounce off? And then also, who can you block? What level of defenders can you block? All those are weighted in my depth of talent of how well you can do it. You know, I, you know, if you can handle safeties and quarterbacks, well, that's one level. If you can handle linebackers, that's another. Can you handle defensive linemen and defensive tackles at least enough to to you know to make a to slow them down a bit? You, you know, then that's a that's another level with that. So with with Deuce Vaughn, what I see is a player who scores well enough to be a contributor off the bench. If you fashion an offense around him and you use him in ways that really just maximize his skills and open space or and and then use him between the tackles but in certain selective manners that are strategic, sure, I could see him delivering starter production, but I feel like I just ifed myself into a very specific scenario. Um, so unfortunately, he's just, you know, it, he's just shy of the ride in terms of the power component. Sure, if you ask him to run, you know, ten times, will he break a tackle of a of a three hundred pounder on occasion? Yes. Will it be often enough that a coach is going to feel okay about running him fifteen times, you know, in and seven or eight of them in the middle of the field? Probably not. You know, now I'm not projecting based on that, but. Um, I am projecting based on what I saw on the field. And what I saw was just shy of being really a rotational starter, more of a contributor. Um, and you you ask a great question because realistically, the last guy who was around that size was Noel Devine you know, out of West Virginia. And they wouldn't let him ride the ride. Um, you know, they wouldn't let him ride the ride at the Senior Bowl. Um, and so I, I'm rooting for Deuce Vaughn. I hope that he exceeds my expectations, but for me, that power component kept him out of being a, you know, a legitimate rotational contributor. Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that you know it's going to be interesting what the NFL thinks about Deuce Vaughn, right? Like, do they look at him as like a part-time rusher, third-down? 
pass catcher, return guy? Does that get him early day free draft capital? Or are we talking late day free or UDFA, right? I think the, yeah. I think the scope in terms of where he can come off the board is pretty wide there. Uh, before we transition to some pass catchers, I kind of want to throw out a couple names that I don't think are getting talked about at all. One, maybe a tiny little bit. The other two, not at all. Uh, sprinkled throughout your top 20, one in the top 10, one in the middle teens, one in the late, uh, the, the back end of your top 20. Uh, Tian Evans out of Louisville, Chris Brooks out of BYU and formerly Cal, and Jaleel McLaughlin out of Youngstown State. I'm pretty confident saying most people are, are not talking about Brooks and, and McLaughlin. Uh, Evans, I, I believe, was at the Combine, so he got a little bit of, of buzz. Uh, maybe just talk through a couple things about each of these guys that intrigue you and that have them where they are, you know, uh, in your process and in your ranks. Evans certainly is a good mover. He's fluid. He really understands how to execute cutbacks and bounce outs, but he'll also take it inside and he'll attack. He's got that bowling ball kind of size, 5'9", 225, 4'5", speed. Um, positive end of a developing um, track for or the trajectory for him to become a good pass rusher or pass um, pass protector and a receiver. Christopher Brooks is one of my favorite backs for over the past two years. Just because when I watch him, I see kind of a Gus Edwards, Mike Anderson, James Conner type of back in that if I was to go from low to high end of the spectrum of what I would comp him to, um, you know, James Conner being where he would ha- probably have to work towards. But he's a good pass receiver. You see him. They won. Re- they At Cal, they ran re- wheel routes with him. They used him in the red zone a lot. He'd come back and work to the ball. Um, and the quarterback trusted him, but he's a 6'1", 235-pound wrecking machine who has quick feet and can pick and slide through creases and just move defenders. He's going to be, to me, he's going to be a a highly underrated back who's probably signed as a UDFA who probably ends up contributing to a roster at some point. Um, And then... You know, Jaleel McLaughlin's on the exact opposite end of the spectrum. He's kind of a Philip Lindsay dimension type of player, which means that a lot of people are going to have to get hurt for him to get an opportunity to probably start. Um, but when I watch him play like Philip Lindsay, he really understood how to hug blocks to set to really set up creases and get skinny through a crease, hug his blockers so that he eliminated angles of pursuit coming from the, the boundary or from sideline to sideline. And he's got the speed and acceleration to be a big play option. And, you know, for me, like people love Naeem Hines, and I think Naeem Hines is a nice player. I think Jaleel McLaughlin is a little bit more natural of a runner than Naeem Hines was. And in today's NFL, we're having a lot of, you know, if this continues from last year, last year we had more, you know, the EPA on passing was lower than anything we've seen in the past decade, according to Michael Lopez, the stat researcher for the NFL. And we saw the rush game increase. The running game was back and first time it had been in 10 years. And a lot of what was back that we hadn't seen is because all these defenses had the, you know, the safeties disguised as linebackers playing in the box. Um, they had the lighter offenses and, and the lighter defenses and offenses were like, we can suddenly run gap plays now. We can pull linemen and we can run toss and power and counter. And those are plays where I'm exaggerating to an extent when I say this, but you can take someone and say, don't think meat, 
just take the ball and head right there. That's what Mike Shan- that's what Kyle Shanahan does with his running backs. That's why I like Trey Sermon, who I love, probably failed out in the league because Russ Landy and I talked about this last year. Is that Trey Sermon is a diagnostic type of back, like wants to press and cut back, read the field and cut back. Elijah Mitchell's are like, just hit it fast. Devin Coleman, hit it fast. We just want guys who don't think. And they thought, well, if we get a brainy guy at the running back position, we can tell him to just turn that off and hit this. It doesn't work that way because you've had to work. Again, it's processing, looking at things to the speed of instinct and re- refining that. When you got a guy who can't process that fast, but they can just, they know I'm big, strong, and fast, and I'm going to hit that hard, then you can do that with a guy like him. And I think that that's... You know, that's what we're going to see more in the NFL maybe the next couple of years is simpler schemes for running backs. Let the linemen do the hard work. Now the now the running back doesn't have to diagnose as much. And that opens the field to a lot more athletes. And that means maybe some smaller, faster guys or bigger, stronger guys um, who may not have the the top diagnostic skills but do enough to just hit creases and make the most of it. So it may bode well for even though I like what Christopher Brooks does as a decision maker, it'll bode well for guys like Brooks or a guy like um, McLaughlin. It certainly benefited a guy like um, Tyler Algier last year. Yeah, for sure. So love hearing your perspective and take on, on some under the radar guys that are just not getting uh, the attention out there as as we constantly cycle through the same names sometimes over and over. Uh, let's take this to the past catchers, and I and I am going to start with a couple bigger names. And again, I feel like we have kind of peeled back a little bit at our process. And I know you enjoy talking about it a little bit. And I think uh, fans of yours sometimes don't get a chance as much to hear you on podcasts. Talk a little bit about it. Uh, two guys, Cedric Tillman and Jaden Reed, who I'm fans of both of them from the RSB. I, I see that you're uh, a fan of their game as well. When you do your evaluation, do you just watch if they have a full plethora of games from the most recent season? Do you go back and watch anything from previous season in your in your process? And if so, do you weight it differently? Do you weight the same? Because I do think for myself, Tillman and Reed and were two guys. Tillman and Reed were two guys who. Based on circumstances, injury, I love their 2021 tape. I thought that was their best tape. I like their 2022 tape at times, but I thought their 2021 tape really showed the type of players that maybe they could be. So maybe just a little bit about that and what you like about these two players. Sure. I I, I watch multiple years of players. Um, sometimes when I chart, I may only chart one year, but I watch multiple years. And usually after I chart players, what I will do is I'll go back and watch um, – Sometimes I'll just watch every game and just go through it. But only after I've done the fine-tooth comb of looking at everything I need to look at. And then when I'm looking at every every play, it's because maybe there's one thing I haven't seen yet that I want to look for. And it's like I have a really small checklist of things. And I go, let's just watch every play now. Now that I don't have to like break down every moment and stop and pause every single thing that I've been doing, I've already done all that. Now I can just do what... You know, I imagine that some big draft folks do, which is sit back in their club chair, have their cigar. I don't have their whiskey. I don't do those two things. I'm working, but like be able to like, you know, relax and let it wash over them, you know, and I understand that, you know, there's a there's value to that, too. But I'll watch all that at that point, because now I'm only looking for those two things. 
but I'll get to see everything else and, and things will stand out. So, you know, with Cedric Tillman and, and Jay and Jaden Reed, I mean, Tillman to me, and I, I don't weight him any differently because if I see enough things that work out well, doesn't matter what year it was. Um, I will sometimes note the difference if it's a sparse, if it's really a stark difference um, between, you know, 2022 and 2021. But uh, with Tillman, he just, you know, I saw a consistent player. I saw a player who could go up and win the football and whether he was using good technique to catch the ball or he had lapses of technique that every receiver has, he could still make the catch, you know, and there are a lot of guys who if their technique isn't perfect. They don't catch the ball or if they, um, or they just don't have good technique. And then that doesn't translate well to, to the NFL game. If it's like rampantly bad on a regular basis, um, he's good against tight coverage. He's strong. I think he's more than fast enough to play outside, obviously, and to to be able to do good work as kind of a Mike Williams type of player. Um, I think he can be that kind of weapon for a team. So I'm a, I'm a fan. Um, I thought he was, you know, I just thought he was consistent, and I thought he made things a little easier for for Jalen Hyatt because of the threat that he was down after down. He could work in the middle of the field. I thought there was potential for him to become – a, a well-rounded route runner because of the way that he bends, the way that he can, there's some potential for him to accelerate in and out of breaks, some of the skill that he shows with his ability to drop his weight into hard breaks, the the release packages that he has should get better. So, and there was stuff there that, to like. Jaden Reed was the same way. His hands positions sometimes were a little off and he had some drops, but you also saw him face, you know, tight coverage, good cornerback play and, win you know and win consistently and i think he can play all three positions i think he'll probably be better off as a flanker or a slot or a combination of both um but he's good after the catch he's he's rugged enough to make the plays um against contact he's a good runner after the catch um he's one of my favorite players in the wide receiver class and i think he'll wind up being a good starter in this league yeah i I, reed is a guy who i think it's been a little bit of a, in terms of national attention, it's been a little bit of momentum building after the Senior Bowl, been talked about a little bit more, but I still think people are looking at him as like a Dave Free guy. I think the NFL is going to value him higher than that. I think he's going off the board on Friday night, whether it's late round two, early round three. Uh, I, I'm intrigued with him. Another big name who most people have jumped off the ship is Keishan Booty. What is it about Keishan Booty that that still intrigues you? We, whether it's the up and down production this year has turned people the wrong way. I think again, I think people are judge trying to judge character when we really don't have privy to the inside, you know, information that really is gets us to allows us to truly know that. And I think people from the outside perspective on Twitter sometimes just act like what we see or the little tidbits that we hear. It, is the whole story and we know it's not that and then obviously i think more people most people i think expected him to test out better so the combine then didn't go the way but when you watch him on film what is it about him that thinks that you think could still see him make the transition successfully to the next level when a year ago most people would have said oh he's gonna be locked in number one or number two wide receiver right in terms of the, the major draft guys, right, are all going to be saying that who don't even have a detailed oriented process, right? Booty was going to be the guy that's been talked about for years. 
Uh, obviously not anymore. Most people don't even look at him anymore as like a top 100 player in this draft class. Most think, I think he's going to be there on Saturday. Uh, but what is it about him when you put him for your process that still uh, has you intrigued with his skill set? Well, I mean, I think, first of all, I think people looked at him at LSU and said, oh, he had a 300-yard debut. He He's following Jamar Chase and Justin Jefferson. The LSU's on the top of the world. And then it all sank, and they all wanted to make him part of the scapegoat of that sinking, like he could do that all on his own. Um, you know, if it was a quarterback, I'd give him a little more weight. But given a, a, a slot-wide receiver, not an outside receiver, maybe occasionally a flanker, but a slot receiver. So, again, not even – really the same positions as the two guys that he followed. He's more of a, he's closer to a true slot receiver or a, or a flanker slot hybrid than he is a guy who can play all three positions like the two guys that preceded him. Second of all, when you look at his game and how he plays, Chad Ryder says it great at NFL.com. He plays the game on the ground, meaning that his feet are on the ground most of the time. And he's, when he makes the catch, he's making the first or second man miss. He's breaking a tackle. He's he's not a contested catch aerial guy on that level. He can make contested plays, but he's not going to go up and win the ball. So when you look at that 29-inch vertical leap and people are like, oh, I'm off that bus, you know, forget that. Well, I'll just remind you that there are two players with his dimensions with in his style of play who are thrive who have thrived in the NFL long enough that they deserve respect. One of them is Jarvis Landry, who had a 29-inch vertical leap, who was slower and not as quick as Kayshawn Booty. Another one was Robert Woods, who also had a 29-inch vertical leap and who was not who was about the same speed, but not quite as quick with his initial acceleration as Booty. And I'll take any of those, I'll take either of those two players any day because their games are similar to Kayshawn Booty. You're not asking them to make, you know, um contested catches off, you know, you're asking them to work the middle of the field to work the boundary on certain timing routes, um, to run after the catch, to block, to you know, to work in schemed environments as well. And they can catch the heck out of the football. So when I look at that, to me, it's kind of like, he's kind of like the Dalvin Cook of this class for wide receivers where everyone was off Dalvin Cook because his high school and his college vertical were bad. But they didn't realize that, you know, the metrics are about, the metrics are nice to look at, but you have to see if the metric fits the style of the player. And if it doesn't, you know, if it doesn't fit the way the player plays, then you got to throw out the metric because it doesn't matter. You know, the metrics are an approximation of what that the athlete can do on the field. It's not the rule. And I think that's what sometimes people miss. So for me, Booty is a top five wide receiver in this class. Um, and, I think that he'll wind up on a team. Now, the biggest question is, our team's not going to go towards big tight or tight ends to be their their third receiver so that they can run more as lead blockers on counter and power and, and toss and all of that. Or are they going to be okay with a guy like Booty and say, yeah, you know what? He fits with what we do. Maybe the, the window's smaller for him in terms of opportunity to thrive at the highest level. But I think if he gets that opportunity and the – the off the field really isn't as big of a deal, then he's going to thrive well. And I think that's the big question is that when he drops, because he probably will, Twitter's going to say it's due to the off field. And then we may hear that it's actually actually the combine or it may be a combination of both. 
we'll fi- we'll find out. But I like them. I'm not worried about them. Yeah, I mean, as far as far as the NFL trends go, I I don't know how many teams are really on the cutting edge of you know adjusting to lighter defenses. You know, you still see a lot of narrative of the game is won through the passing game, right? And that's where you get all the value in your offense um, without the understanding that it's a much more, you know, nuanced game than than EPA per play. But, um, you know, and, and I think the other point on, on Booty is uh, there's, you know, I get frustrated a lot when, you know, you said he plays on the ground. I don't necessarily see that as a bad thing, right? When you're on oh. the ground, when you're on the ground, you can change direction. You can move. One of my pet peeves is players jumping in the air, you know, without a without a reason to it. And, you know, I, I see some wide receivers that I've observed that um, in their play pretty regularly towards the bottom of your list. I think Josh Downs comes to mind from a couple, you know, couple games that I've watched. Um, yeah, and it, and it just, you know, if you're, if you're in the air, you're not, you're not changing direction. And, and that's one of the things Booty's absolutely, you know, great at. You don't, you don't want him up in the air. <laughs> you know, he's going to make you miss when he's running. Um, maybe just one more quick hit because it's a name I watched all year. Um, you know, it's actually kind of funny. I, you know, Charlie Jones is one of the names I watched all year, but, you know, really, um, you know, really the guy that I fell in love with with just this hesitation uh, is Xavier Hutchinson. And part of the hesitation is because, you know, I I fell in for the uh, Hakeem Butler, you know, uh, Iowa State wide receiver love too. I I know Hutchinson's a bit of a different player. He served as their go-to option. I mean, he was always there for them. And also, I just, I don't think he's a name that, I've really heard much this off season. So, you know, is there anything about Xavier Hutchinson that you want to put out there or are there any other like Waldman favorites that, you know, I see a name kind of uh, down there that, you know, a couple names a little bit lower down the list too, that I've heard you, you know, talk fondly about, is, you know, are there any other Waldman favorites too that you want to hit on before we move on? Well, I'm a big fan of Xavier Hutchinson and and certainly, um, I'm still rooting for Hakeem Butler because obviously he's lighting up the what is it the XFL right now, you know. So maybe he'll get an opportunity in camp, you know. And that's and part of that is that you know he dropped some passes. Maybe he was slow to pick up some things, or maybe it was that Arizona had a split in their draft room about who they wanted him or Dance Fever Andy Isabella, you, you know. And and you know when you look at that, neither of those guys really worked out. But Cliff, Cliff Kingsbury's gone, right? You know, so and that offense was a disaster. And that whole era in terms of like what they could have done was probably maybe not a disaster. Maybe that would be hyperbole, but didn't work out. Um, So uh, all I know is that you've got a big 230 pound receiver who can run, who drops some passes. But that sounds like, oh, I don't know, Brandon Marshall. Sounds like Terrell Owens. I mean, those guys dropped a lot of balls, too. They had below 60 percent. Um, completion or catch rates a lot of times during their career. So I don't know if Hakeem Butler's going to get there. Certainly a number of teams, you could say, well, a number of teams didn't take him, take him either or like cut him as well. But a lot of teams cut Raheem Mostert because they didn't know what they had in him either until he wound up in San Francisco because guys get labeled quickly. And then they're like, oh, he's 
you know, he's this. And then they find out later that he could have been a lot more. Um, Xavier Hutchinson, look, we're probably not alone. I know Fran Duffy, when he, he checked out the RSP, you know, and Fran does great work, and he, he texted me privately and was like, I'm not sharing anything that's crazy. He's just like, he just wrote me and said, I love Hakeem. I, I'm a big um, Xavier Hutchinson fan as well. And the thing that I love about his game is that he is an advanced route runner for this stage of his, his career. He really understands how to use pacing to set up routes. Um, he has good bend. He really understands how to use his footwork to transition downhill, um, which is an important aspect when you're not unbelievably fast. Can you, can you really kind of take tight turns and get past defenders who are close to you? Do you know where the defenders are on the field to process quickly can do all that. And he has an amazing catch radius for his size. You know, he has great catch radius, reliable with the ball. Um, four five speed isn't awful. You know, it's just not, it's flanker speed. It's not split end speed, you know? So I'm a, or, or maybe even slot, maybe you put him as a slot flanker too. Maybe he's a Juju Smith Schuster type of player down the line, somewhere along those lines. Well, you know, Juju didn't do too bad last year. Um, and came back from some things. So I'm a big fan of him. Keelan Harris is a, is a player out of Oklahoma Baptist who you just never know at the next le- whether he can jump a couple of levels and really be as good. But the catch radius is great. He's tough. He's quick. Um, I, I The moves that I see with him off the line of scrimmage should translate at some point if he can read defenders pretty well. So I I'm feel pretty good about him. Grant DuBose isn't really a sexy name because, again, he's kind of an Xavier Hutchinson kind of athlete, but strong, um, good catch radius, um, runs decent routes. He's another guy that I think will stick in the league and maybe be able to work his way into a into a role. Yeah, really good stuff there. A couple of those guys. I think it's going to be really fascinating to see this wide receiver class because I think collectively – it's it, it doesn't have the the star power at the top that we've had in, in past years. You know, whether we want to say, oh, Jackson Smith and the Jigbo would 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 kind of be in the mix with the guys from last year and the years before. But but after that, I think it's kind of like the question marks kind of arise, like, you know, whether it's size, whether there's something in each of these players uh, who are going to go in round one, I think more. More areas of questions with, with the group this year than I think we've had in past years. So it's going to be fascinating because I think there's going to be some guys, you know, on day three who really get an opportunity. And, and I think after like the initial, like, you know, eight to 10 names, I think we might realize that the NFL has things very differently more than ever this year. And I think we might start seeing, we always see that on day three. I'm not sure we don't see a little bit of even start to kind of seep into day two this year as we get into round three where someone's like, whoa, we didn't expect that because I do think it's going to be kind of like pick your flavor in terms of what you want. And we know the wide receiver position is becoming so specialized. And, and one of the things I loved about the RSP is like the way you break it down in terms of, you know, we really shouldn't even be putting slot wide receivers, you know, on the same list of rankings as outside wide receivers. They're complete. What they're asked to do is completely different. We just kind of throw them all in one, you know, one thing, you know, on draft weekend and, you know, pass catcher gumbo. There we go. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, So it's going to be fun to watch the wide receiver class. Let's, let's end the night with some tight end talk because I do think this tight end class is, is, is a extremely interesting one. 
I'm not going to say it's like the greatest ever, which I you know is like the narrative being pushed out there. Uh, I, I like a lot of these guys, and, and I think people can have the top of it ranked pretty differently because I think it depends on what you prefer and, and, and what's most valuable to you. Uh, but I don't think the guy I'm bringing up, your opinion, respect tremendously. Dame Brugger's opinion, respect tremendously. Len Zerline. All three of you guys are telling us you better like Luke Shoemaker and you better know about him. But I still don't think people are talking about him enough and understand what he can bring to the table. And that's three of what I think are as good of draft evaluators that are out there telling you that he's a really good player. And I don't think he's still getting the attention that he probably warrants. If you kind of are someone who's just on Twitter following the draft, you know, the, the dress stuff and, and what could happen. So what is it about Luke Shoemaker's game that, that has you so intrigued? Well, I'm glad to hear those two are high on him as well. Cause that's the first time I've, I haven't had a chance to check out their stuff. Yet. I usually wait till after the draft. So that's awesome to hear. Um, He's my number two tight end on this on this board, and and for those of you who wonder, you know, when you look at Dane and you look at Lance, you know, they're probably more NFL first, fantasy second. I try to do an even blend of both, and I try to gear my tight end rankings more towards the Belichick style of for early round tight ends need to be high end pass catchers. I can find a blocker later, so I've always geared it that way. So if Schoenmacher or Schoenmaker is Number two on my board, despite the fact that blocking may not have as much weight as what those other guys probably put on it, that should tell you something. And it and because what the film told me was that besides the fact that he is the best blocker in this class, um, is that he wasn't used much split other than beyond maybe in a two-point stance in, in the slot and usually kind of a, as a wing guy. But you could see the bend the ability to drop his weight and 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 be able to extend the the front leg with the break step to execute routes that will translate to a fuller route tree in the NFL if his metrics match what he does on the field. And from what I saw on the field, you could see elements of that. Maybe he's not George Kittle quick or Travis Kelsey quick, but he's not so far away that he can't be a matchup problem for some safeties and definitely linebackers. He does get open in the red zone. He has a great catch radius. He wins the ball easily away from his frame, working against his break path or above his head or low targets. He can usually break the first, he can break the first tackle or be able to at least extend and get some yardage. And he's got nifty footwork. What people, people are looking for moves and great stop start movement. But what I usually look for, same with running backs, is that if you're working towards the boundary, as your runway, and then you got to cut downhill. How many gather steps do you need to transition from that boundary approach to a downhill approach? And if you're a big 260 plus pound tight end and you can, you're lumbering, you know, or it looks like you're lumbering, or maybe you're just, you, you know, you've, you've gotten up to a good bit of speed and you're, and you've gained all that momentum and now you've got to cut downhill and you can take two gather steps and get inside a cornerback and make him miss you're a pretty agile dude. You're really agile for 260-plus pounds. And Luke Schoonmacher has that to his game, too. So I think there's a chance that he could become that kind of unicorn tight end that everyone thinks of when they think of a tight end. They go, well, what is a tight end? Well, he's part blocker. He's part receiver. When in reality, he's in, in today's NFL, 
they realized that guys who do that generally get hurt a lot. Even if it was Rob Gronkowski or Martellus Bennett or, um, you know, or down the, you know, George Kittle's getting banged up a fair bit nowadays. They're, it's almost an impossible position, you know. So now they're going back to, well, I, we've got Ozzie Newsome who really doesn't block, but he's a great pass catcher. He can do a little bit of blocking to help us out. Or a Kellen Winslow, he could help us out a little bit in the blocking game, but he was mostly this. But you kind of weighed it towards what they did best, and, and, and you did try and combine everything. Well, Schoonmacher might be that candidate that you could say, maybe he can be a good blend of both. Um, he, he might have that opportunity. The, the biggest key is if you start seeing him win matchups against safeties and cornerbacks split wide, you better get on that cat fast. If not, he's probably more of a six to eight hundred yard pass catcher who can give you, if on upside years, give you the range of seven to ten touchdowns, which is still fantasy valuable. It's just it's just the difference between being that and a thirteen hundred yard player with double digit scores. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because he's one of those guys that before the season started, uh, most people pigeonholed him as as a blocking tight end, and I don't think they expected the production this year. I don't. They definitely don't think they expected the athletic testing numbers. And there's another, I'm drawing a blank, but there's another Michigan tight end who before the season started was even more highly regarded. Now he's transferring, forget where he's going, but he really has kind of morphed himself into this year to this more complete player. So it's going to be fascinating. So, you know, he's another guy, like we've heard about the top six that have been mentioned, you know, in the, in the, you know, the media that, oh, those six are definitely going in the first two rounds. I mean, the first two days of the draft. But but I think I think Shoemaker's going. I, I just think there's I think he's a guy that whether it's late round two or somewhere in round three, I think he's gonna be another guy that comes off the board. And and you're right, he might be that unicorn, right? That complete skill set. Uh, you know, I think there's a couple guys that that could develop into that. It's always one of those positions. Uh, I'm a big fan of Luke Musgrave. Uh, I think I saw an RSP that you you count them. They're a guy like Martellus Bennett, like which would you know if he hit, you know if he hits it all, you know I, I can see that. Uh, another guy I want to bring up is is a guy that I saw on both your wide receiver board and your tight end board, and that's Elijah Higgins out of Stanford. What is it about Elijah Higgins that you feel tight end would be the path for him that would make the most sense? Because there was a wide, obviously, discrepancy in terms of where you had him on your wide receiver board, and then as as a potential, you know, top five tight end. What is it about Higgins' game that you think he he profiles best at the next level, maybe as a, as a, as a tight end? Because really, you're going to get to use him from the slot as kind of a big slot receiver, and they're going to ma- or they're going to match him outside against defenders where his skills to separate are going to be a bigger mismatch on a, on a regular basis. And he can break tackles. He is certainly quick enough to play wide receiver in the league. It's kind of like Darren Waller in that sense to me. It's like he's quick enough to, to play the position. He can win the ball in the air. He's good after the catch. Um, maybe the route tree isn't as strong, um, but it's one that for a tight end, it's strong enough. And so, you know, when you look at his testing numbers, they're actually very high level for a tight end. And the fact that he was at the senior bowl and they said, kind of in the early part of practice, they said, we're going to, they, they talked him into to working out as a tight end to, to practicing as a tight end. And, and then, and he was 225 or 228 at that time, I think, um, when he weighed in in Mobile. 
And a month later at the combine, he was 10 pounds heavier, which tells me that either A, he's a slacker, which I doubt very seriously, and B, or B, he's embraced the role of becoming a tight end and that by training camp, he's going to be 245 and maybe 250 at some point and that he's going to be making that transition. Yeah, it's gonna be interesting because we 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 always hear about these guys like you know bigger guys maybe they should convert to tight end but I feel like this has been mentioned with Higgins since before the season even started right like if you're following the stuff like again I mentioned before Dane uh, Dane Brugler I think he even mentioned like in preseason stuff that like some people really were intrigued by him but they think maybe at the next level move tight end you know for all the reasons you just kind of outlined out there uh, we talked about some guys that that were intrigued with the tight end. What is it that you saw in your process that maybe is holding you that that you think might hold back Michael Mayer for reaching what people think he's going to be by being either tight end one or tight end two in this class? And you maybe having some more questions. Is there one or two things in particular that maybe you didn't see that you wanted to see? What, what is it with Michael Mayer that that maybe you, you think is missing a little bit? Yeah, he's going to be a good tight end in this class. And if, and and honestly, if he were in any other class, he would probably have been top one, top three in the past three to five years. He easily would have been in that range. I just don't see him as a one-on-one matchup king outside the red zone. Now, in the red zone, that's going to be good. But I don't see him as a Travis Kelsey type who's going to be matched one-on-one against corners or safeties or a George Kittle who can do that. I see him as more of a player who you're going to put in the slot and he's going to match him up against linebackers, mostly work zones, and and maybe be able to beat a safety or a corner outside in the red zone where it's you know 15 yards and in. And that's and if he becomes a focal point of the offense, he could reach that top five status. But he's not a great runner after the catch, if you ask me. He's not a he's not a great route runner against man in that area outside. So there were just happened to be more tight ends who have the speed, the quickness, and the footwork to be able to do that that gave them higher scores overall. But I would say if you're looking for the lowest the highest floor player in this in this draft class, Michael Mayer is probably it for the tight ends. Um, but his ceiling is lower and, and, but not so low that you're going to say he's not going to be a starter. I think he's going to be a starter. He's going to be a good one. I just don't necessarily know if Jason Witten is the best cop is Hunter Henry, maybe a better cop for him. And people will go, Oh, that sucks. Cause Hunter Henry <laughs> hasn't done Jack for me in my fantasy leagues. But you got to remember that he wound up in situations where maybe mm-hmm. that wasn't, worthwhile he's he's a good tight end if he didn't wasn't playing with a rookie in mac jones when he first came over and then a banged up guy and then ended up with zach you know um you know with zach with bailey zap you know who's was did fine for a rookie but again he's played with two rookies and an aging philip rivers okay philip rivers was pretty good there but antonio gates was still in there for a time too and then they didn't have healthy receivers so there's there's a little bit of that with, you know, when I look at a guy like Henry, he's better than what he looks like. I think Michael Mayer is going to be a fine player. I just don't see him being a top perennial top three type, especially when you look at the the Kyle. People are still waiting on Kyle Pitts. That's eventually going to happen, I believe. You know, you still got Kittle. You still got Kelsey. You still got TJ Hawkinson. Yeah. Now that he's on a team that's going to actually throw him the ball like that, um, you know, 
we've we've got some pretty good tight ends and Darren Waller when he's healthy. There's still enough guys there that you could say, yeah, Michael Mayer is really good, but is he going to get those types of looks? I just named four or five players who are probably going to be ahead of him for the next two to three years. And then if the other guys on in this class reach their heights or Kyle Pitts does, there's probably going to be three or four more. So he's still going to be in that probably six to eight or six to ten range. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Cole Quebec kind of comes to mind a little bit. Um, yeah, it's just – I think it's interesting with tight ends because I, I don't know that people really – know how to project them well i mean they're quite a mystery right george kittle was a fifth round pick and and yeah tight ends tight ends are i think one of the more volatile ones to project going forward and you know people people see explosive plays from receivers and running backs and they're you know they overweight that and i think people on the you know on the tight end end um kind of overweight reliability right like they see that guy kind of being used in the offense more and they say, okay, you know, he, he's got talent, he's got skills, he's being, you know, featured in an offense where, I mean, especially on the NFL level too, I, I think there's plenty of talented tight ends, Kyle Pitts to be, you know, one of them that aren't used in a, you know, or featured in the way that an offense uses a tight end dynamically. Um, you know, there's very few offenses that, you know, where the tight ends really see the amount of targets um, to make them fantasy options, right? I, I, you know, Dallas always comes to mind, but, you know, then you could look at a place like Cincinnati and regardless of who they have in that room, it's, it's just not a position that's, that's going to get its looks. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, mayor's, you know, I think mayor's going to be a good name, but, but like you said, I think just there's some enticing, enticing names above, above them that have an intriguing upside. And it's kind of funny because I don't think when we looked at this class a year ago, we would say this tight end class is really going to be, you know, what's anchoring a lot of day one, day two picks. Um, You know, we, you know, a lot of the hype was on the running backs. A lot of the hype was on the wide receivers. I mean, all I heard from a fantasy angle was, you know, get as many 2023 picks as you can get because this class is going to be, you know, the best we've ever seen. And now that we sit here, we're, we're you know, a couple, couple weeks up to the draft. We don't really know what's going to happen. But you sat down, you've looked at all these players, you've, you've given them grades on a macro level. How does this class stack up, you know, relative to, I think we've gotten spoiled from the last couple of years you know, maybe beating our expectations. Does this class have any chance to live up to the the expectations we had coming into 2023 or even, you know, meeting expectations that we might have now seeing what the last couple classes have given us? I think it can. I just think it's a different class. I think that you've got three quarterbacks who could be um, top 12 players. I think three of them probably, three of them, if everything works out right, will be top five caliber producers in the league for a period of time, maybe not all at the same time, but at various points of their career, they'll probably have two to three years as top five guys. Um, if it all, if it all can come together. Now, if you take the, the, the turnover factor of things unexpected, that means it's probably 1.7 in the Vegas odds, but you know that I'll, I'll, I'll live with that. And then, you know, the running back class, I think there's 12 guys 
who can be thousand yard rushers, 1200 yard rushers, maybe um, in this class, if they're used in the right way. Again, that attrition factor, you know, we'll use the magic of, you know, of that and say, maybe that's four to six guys who can do that. Still pretty darn strong when you think about it from that perspective, considering that to me, the one of the greatest running back classes I ever studied was the 2008 class that had Darren McFadden, Richard Mendenhall, um, CJ2K, Matt Forte, Ray Rice, and Jamal Charles, not to mention Kevin Smith um, and Tim Hightower, Steve Slayton. Um, you know, there are a lot of that Justin Forsett. I just named, I think, 10 guys maybe who who all had like thousand yard seasons at some point, you know, or, or at least 800 yard seasons and were lead backs. And, you know, and four or five of them honestly had heights that you could say, should they be in the hall of fame? Could they be in the hall of fame? You, you know? And, and so this class, if I'm talking four to six guys who could be, you know, in that range of Matt Forte, Ray Rice, um, you, you know, Matt, um, let's see, Ray Rice, Jamal Charles, CJ2K, Jonathan Stewart. You know, I mean, that he was also one of those guys. I mean, that's pretty rich class. So 12 guys there. Wide receiver class is what makes it strange because fantasy people and draft folks, wide receiver, they've been, it's ingrained in their head that wide receivers are first round picks. You know, quarterbacks and wide receivers are the guys that you're going to see early day one. So that should tell you, whether or not the draft class is good. Cause you know, we're always looking at the tip of the iceberg as opposed to the iceberg up below the ocean when we judge the, the draft class, which is usually wrongheaded. But you know, this wide receiver class is strange because again, I think there's six to eight guys who will be good starters in the league, you know, somewhere between 800 to 1200 yards. Maybe a few of them will be those will turn into elite players, but then there's guys in the second tier. There's probably another eight to you know, six to eight guys in the second tier um, who, you know, in, in my top 15 on the bottom half of that, who have the skills to maybe be better if they can better than the guys in tier one, Quentin Johnston, I'm talking about you, you know, could possibly be the top receiver in this class if he can figure out how to do some things technically and conceptually that just he's not quite there. You know, there are a number of players like that in the, on, you know, in that area, Michael Wilson, Michael Wilson to me is is basically if he learns how to figure out his hands, he's a spitting image of Michael Thomas. I mean, metrics wise, size wise, route wise, releases, the way he plays the game, he just can't catch the ball as consistently, and he's got to fix that. If he could, it's so frustrating. I love watching him play, but I hate watching him play at the same time for that reason. Like I can't. I hope I'm rooting for him so hard. But guys like that make this class strange. Tank Dell, another one, clapping at a, you know, he claps like he's at a concert, you know, rather than like actually getting his hands to meet a ball. Runs great. Everything he does, he's like the Romeo Dubs of this class. Everything up to the catch point is fantastic, you know. And then at the catch point, you're holding your breath, hoping that he gets it right, you know. So, and if he does, he and, he and, Tajay Spears, the two best open field runners in this class. So there's guys like that, that if they all hit, if the wide receiver class, the second tier of the wide receiver class hits like half of them that I'm wondering about who are landmine oriented hit. And the first, the first tier of the class is pretty good. 
This could be one of the best wide receiver classes we've seen in three or four years. I'm not counting on it. The odds are low of that happening, but there's still a possibility, which makes it strange. Then you've got the tight end class that we just looked at, which I think there's seven to eight guys on this board who can eventually, by year four, be starters or by their second contract, be starters in this league. And maybe three to four of them will turn into like top 10 caliber starters for a period of time in their career. So when you add all that up, I'm buying 2023 picks. I'm not selling them. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really, I'd invest in the running backs. I would invest in some of these wide receiver talents. I definitely invest in the tight ends and the quarterbacks. There's a lot to choose from. It's just got to know where your cutoffs are and understanding too that, um, you know, yes, running back is fraught with danger because of the turnover and because there's a glut of talent there. But at the same time, because of turnover, you just got to, it's like every other year, you just got to keep investing in them. And there's some strong guys on this board who like, you don't want to look back in three years and have outsmarted yourself because you're like, well, you know, there's just too much talent. There's, you know, there's too many good guys here. What if Brees Hall, I'm knock on what he doesn't happen. What if he has a second ACL tear? What if Kenneth Walker has another issue? What if the San Francisco, what if, you know, Christian McCaffrey decides he's going to be an underwear model or, you know, I don't know, whatever happens that, you know, crazy things happen. Somebody retires because they're like, you know what? I've, I've already taken enough hits. I don't want to do this anymore. I want my health in front of me. We're seeing that more and more. Um, or uh, as you know, guys who coming off their first contract and they're getting treated like, you know, they're at the end of the line, even though they've got probably three or four years left, but teams are doing that whole fantasy thing that they fell off a cliff somehow. And, and we look at that and they go, you know what, forget it. I've made enough money. Time for me to move on. Next thing you know, we have a draft class that we're like, I wish I had drafted some of these running backs who are going to get three, four years. We just don't know. Take your chance on talent. Don't get too, too swift. You, you know, don't try to get too smooth with it. Cause if you do, you might fake yourself out. Yeah. I think you said a lot of really key points there that we sometimes overvalue the top, the tippy top of the draft. And I think this is the best draft class to talk about that, right? Like, you know, yeah, no, there's no Jamar Chase this class. We get that. And there's no Jalen Waddle. We get that. But but like you said, if some of these wide receivers meet expectations and then some uh, exceed expectations, I think we all feel pretty confident it's going to be a good running back class. Now, again, landing spot and situation. But I think we all think, you know, there's good running backs in this class that are going to be had on day three. For sure, just the way the the way the, the I mean Zach Evans. And then there's a real possibility we're talking about Zach Evans as a round four pick. You know, if what's out there, you know, in terms of you know procrast you know prognosticating the draft comes true, he's probably going to be day three. But there's going to be a lot of really good backs. We already talked about the tight end class. There could be like you said, six to eight starters and maybe productive fantasy players. We talked about Anthony Richardson. We're all you know we all love him. His ceiling is super high for fantasy. Bryce Young, C.J. Stroud. So it's really that wide receiver no it doesn't have the jamar chase or jalen waddle but if we get some good productive fantasy wide receivers even if they're just a bunch of wide receiver two three types and you add them to the the running what we expect the running back tight end and potentially the top of the quarterbacks to produce you're all of a sudden going to have a really strong draft class that maybe we're just not seeing oh overall number one dynasty player jamar chase okay maybe that's not in in this class but that doesn't mean it can't be a really strong class. And I think we're worried too much about 
the top of the wide receiver market not being as good as, as past draft classes. But collectively, we haven't had a tight end class like this. We haven't had as deep a running back class like this. We haven't had, you know, we don't still to be determined about Trey Lance and that quarterback class. But what if the three guys at the top here actually hit, right? Then we're talking about three really impactful fantasy quarterbacks. We haven't gotten that yet from that other class, right? Fields has been moments, Trevor Lawrence moments, and we're still waiting on the rest. What if I told you that your wide receiver class, if this wide receiver class gets you a Mike Williams type, a Julian Edelman type, a Robert Woods type, and uh, and say a Daryl Jackson, Jay, maybe poor man's um, Reggie Wayne type, and then maybe a guy like, um, you know, I'm trying to think of the other guy that I, that I was going to mention. You know, Jarvis Landry or, or Robert Woods, guys like that. I mean, if I gave you, if there were five guys who were like that, you'd be happy. You would say this was a good draft class. And I think that that's part of it. I mean, like Marvin Mims to me, like many of you who are listening to this maybe aren't as old as like, you know, Paul and I probably, you know, and I see a little gray in Jeff's beard. So maybe that's part of that <laughs> as well. But, you know, if you don't know who Derek Mason was, go look up Derek Mason. Because Derek Mason, Derek Mason had a ton of thousand yard seasons. When he needed to be a, a wide receiver, one he could be for the Titans' offense. He wasn't naturally one of those guys. Took him a few years. Took him more than a few years to really to make his run. But he had a fifteen year career in the NFL. By the end of his his career, he was still killing it for the Ravens. At the end of his his career, Marvin Mims is that kind of talent. He's kind of a. a you know, a Derek Mason type of player. So if you're going to be all ticked off because you're not getting the next Jalen Waddle and, and Jamar Chase, Ju- Justin Jefferson, A.J. Brown type of player, then you're spoiled. Just, you know, you're spoiled and you need to get, you, you need to get <laughs> like, you, somebody needs to like shake you a little bit and say, dude, you don't, you, everyone gets a shot at at least one of those players in round one. It's these other guys that you want to, take a chances on that are going to give you wide receiver two, three, and four. And if you get enough of these guys, you might have a stocked wide receiver core that you don't need a Jalen Waddle to win your championship because you've got three really good starters sitting there on your depth chart. Yeah, I love it. I mean, my favorite leagues are the ones that run deep, deep starting rosters, right? Where you really need to, um, it, it bolsters the you know strength in you know what you're saying finding reliable players i mean goodness Derek mason uh so i grew up um obviously a 49ers fan but the titans were kind of my other team big steve mcnair fan actually i really loved eddie george eddie george is one of my you know favorite players growing up which is you know, he's one of that I remember from my childhood. That was um, my team. That was my team after the Browns left Cleveland. Was was the was that era of the Titans with McNair? They were and so George fun and Mason and all of them. They were great. They were so fun. Mason was the one who was dragged down on the one yard line, though, right? No, it was Dyson. Oh, that was Dyson. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You know, you know the guy <laughs> they drafted instead of Randy Moss. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. Steve right? McNair would have been in the Hall of Fame if Randy Moss got drafted. By the Titans, I, well, I, I yeah, probably, easily, probably, easily. yeah. I I love the way that you framed it too. Um, you know, you know about the depth of the class, um, depth of talent. You know, and and I think that's a great way to frame this class um, because I think we've been spoiled with top end talents coming out, um, but that's not really who makes up NFL rosters, right? 
NFL rosters are made up by, you know, those contributors that can come in and give you 600, 800, 1,000 yards, you know, as reliable options for their offense. Uh, yeah, I think the challenge with this class, and maybe I'll just plug your RSP here because, you know, I've been a subscriber for, you know, many years now. Well, thank you. They've always been valuable. It's helped me identify these. I think the trick with this class is not, you know, understanding the players, understanding how they fit their teams and trying to pick out we mentioned that there's a list of names and some of them will come out as as you know hits and some of them won't and you know i found that the rsp has really helped my hit rate when i draft for my fantasy teams um that's going to be the trick for this draft class so you know i'll i'll plug yours plug your rsp for you because i'm a big believer but um you know, but that that one's going to be, I think, the trick for this this draft class is to really see, you know, who comes out of it and and that fit. And I know you do a post draft as well. I'm really looking forward to picking that one up and reading it as well. Well, I appreciate that, and and certainly, you know, I certainly have my misses. We all do. I mean, nobody's nobody's batting a thousand, but I've been doing this 18 years, so that tells me that that my misses haven't been so horrific that it's cost me the ability to do what I'm doing. And I've learned from those misses. I actively, you know, the the process that I started, that I adopted back in 2005, when I started to create the first one for 2006, was meant for me to grow from my mistakes. It was meant for me to notice things that are inconsistencies with how I evaluate material or that things aren't defined clearly enough or that I'm not weighting the value of certain elements enough, or I'm giving too much weight to things. And I constantly work at trying to find ways to, to make it better, reading coaching manuals, talking to people who scout the game, talking to players and what, you know, who've played in the league and what they've, you know, what, what their transitions were like, what's projectable, what's not. And I'm not just throwing it out there every year and seeing what sticks. I spend a couple of years, maybe three or four, and go, all right, this is something that I'm considering, but I'm not just going to throw that out here as a change until I've seen enough to feel like that's something that I should, you know, incorporate into my process. And so, you know, that's that's what I would say about it is, you know, the lessons that I learned from guys like Blaine Gabbard and 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 Cam Newton and Dak Prescott helped me make good calls on guys like Lamar Jackson and Patrick Mahomes and make good calls against guys like Zach Wilson, you know, or Drew Locke. And it's not like I'm rooting against them. I want them to succeed. But, I'm, you know, at the same time, in, in a way, I'm also looking that I want my, I want my assessments to be accurate. You know, and and so, you know, accurate for me isn't saying Zach Wilson's never going to make it in the NFL. I look at it as a, I think Zach Wilson's more of a backup caliber player who's getting rated as a as a starter and he's not ready for that because of these reasons or these reasons. Or Daniel Jones, where I've I've said for entertainment purposes, because Paul was there where I said he was <laughs> a fraud. And I said he was a fraud as a first round pick. And I certainly look. He's done a great job this year and or last year. And thanks to Brian Dable and Mike Kafka, they've done a great job of pairing the offense with what he does well and minimizing his weaknesses and maximizing his strengths. But he deserves credit for being good enough to be able to do that, you know? And sure, would you have draft 
would you necessarily draft a guy in the first, at where you picked him? I would argue you probably wouldn't draft a guy where they picked him for him to finally start to show signs at the end of his first contract. You'd probably want to see that a year or two earlier. But he did it, and that means that you, you know that's that's worthwhile on that end. But you know things like that. So um, you know I appreciate the I appreciate the thoughts, and you know if you're interested in the RSP, you can get it at mountwaldman.com. Um, you can there's sample videos of what I do. You can go to mountwaldmanrsp.com and read testimonials from people who who you know like Paul and Jeff as well as folks who play you know who coach who are NFL, or excuse me, college directors of recruiting, guys like our buddy Alex Brown, who used to be with Optimum Scouting, who's now the director of recruiting at SMU. He tells me that the you know, two most purchased draft guides that are from independent scouts, that's, that are in, from independent scouts that NFL scouts and personal evaluators buy, well, they're Danes and mine, you know? And so, you, you know, Dane and, you know, Dane's got a great, um, does great work with the beast. And, you know, he studies all the prospects. I study 150 at quarterback, running back, wide receiver, and tight end. You you know, so, you know, if you're looking for something specialized, also with a fantasy point of view that's football approved, that's what you get with the RSP. Yeah, guys, you know, obviously here, We've been long proponents of Matt's work every year. Say, if you're not buying it, you got to get that, get over to the website. You got to buy it, subscribe to the podcast, all the great work that he puts out there, the videos and everything. It is top notch. It will not only help you better for fantasy, but it will make you a smarter football fan uh, and more knowledgeable about these prospects. We hope you enjoyed this episode where we dug a little bit deeper, a little bit more uh, about the process that Matt uses to evaluate these guys. So, Matt, again, thank you so much for coming on. We always look forward to this episode. Man, I always enjoy doing this. Thanks for having me once again. Absolutely. So, on behalf of Matt, on behalf of Jeff, on behalf of our sound tech engineer, David Nakano, and myself, thank you for joining us. And we look forward next time taking you from Saturday to Sunday. <laughs>